Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Amanda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Muhammad Adikari, apologies, um, for stumbling over my words right as we get started, which is not doing this book justice because this is an absolutely fascinating book titled Destroying to Replace Settler Genocides of Indigenous Peoples, um, out this year in 2020, 2022 from Hackett. Um, this book is really interesting because it looks at colonial genocides quite specifically in a global perspective and over quite a long time period. So it's both a case study book and a book that's making a lot of interconnected arguments and somehow doing that without running 800 pages. Um, so this is a interesting book that I think some people might be familiar with some of the case studies more than others and really brings a lot of different things into conversation with each other, which is incredibly helpful in our understanding of settler imperialism, in our understanding of genocide, in our understanding of how these things interact with each other. So, Mohammed, I'm really pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book. Hi, Miranda. Thank you for inviting me to participate in your podcast series. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, just as an introduction, I can say that I'm a recently retired academic and emeritus professor of history at the University of Cape Town who still teaches an undergraduate as well as a postgraduate course on settler colonialism and genocide. And I've also since 2010 been teaching between one and two courses annually on the same subject to Stanford study abroad students. Now, I have for some years been wanting to write a book on settler colonialism and genocide to serve as an introductory text to these courses, but never quite found the time to do so. But then in November 2018, when I was on the point of retiring and after presenting a paper on settler genocide at a symposium of the New England chapter of the World History Association, I was approached by Professor Al Andrea, the series editor of the Critical Themes in World History series, to do a book on settler colonialism and genocide for that series. Um, I jumped at the opportunity because I like the series and the offer took care of the need for me to find a suitable publisher for the project. Uh, you know, and it's a project I had been contemplating for a decade or so. And then little did I know that most of this book would be written under two and a half years of lockdown. Lockdown of libraries, of archives, the closing of campuses, etc., and there could hardly have been a better time for me to write a book that drew largely on my two decades of teaching and the material that I, that, that I generated rather than archival and other forms of research. So this book will always stand out for me as the one I wrote during the pandemic. Now, I think that this book offers readers the best of both worlds in that it contains a good deal of my own thinking about the subject as a researcher and scholar, and sh therefore should be of interest to peers in the field, 
but it is also very deliberately written in language that is accessible to lay readers. And, you know, um, a challenge in all of my books has been to present complex ideas in accessible language rather, and, and to avoid the jargon that so often mars academic discourse. The book is also on a subject central to the making of the modern world, so should have wide appeal, especially to people living in settler societies. Thank you for introducing yourself um, and the book. I think that it's uh, really interesting to kind of see what happens when people had projects that started before the pandemic and how that turns out. Um, and particularly in a case like yours, where you were sort of already thinking a lot about it and already had so much to bring to it. And then suddenly that all had to come together in perhaps a different way than you expected. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about the book is that, as I mentioned, it does go um, through case studies and it goes into them in quite a lot of depth and um, discusses primary sources at the end of each one as well, which is wonderful. And it's quite impressive, really, how much the case studies are accessible to lay people and are also really contributing directly to scholarship. Um, so I'm, I would love to kind of obviously get a lot into the case studies, but first off, can you introduce to us um, kind of which are the case studies that you chose and why you selected these particular ones to focus on? Okay. Um, the format of the series is to cover four case studies. I would have loved to have done more, but the format was four and insisted on four. Um, I also then needed to choose very carefully as this book was intended as a reading for my students and I cover between 8 and 12 cases in the various courses. So an important consideration was to choose case studies that were central to my courses. Uh, but I did not have an entirely free hand in choosing the case studies. I needed to motivate my choices in the context of a very thorough evaluation of my choices, first by academic peer reviewers of my book proposal, and second, an even more rigorous scrutiny by the series editor and the publisher represented by Rick Todd, under, Todd Hunter, who's senior editor at, at Hackett Publishing. And after much toing and froing and robust discussion that included consideration of a few wayward and exotic possibilities, I was allowed to prevail in two respects. The first respect was that the book focused on the making of Western global dominance rather than covering the entire span of human history. Now that choice was important for me because it gives the book a clear thematic focus and a degree of coherence that the broader approach would not have had. Um, to have done an all-inclusive study covering all of world history with only four cases would simply have resulted in a diffuse and rather erratic analysis, I think. Now, secondly, the choice of case studies we finally settled on in chronological order were, firstly, the genocidal destruction of indigenous Canary Islanders by Spanish invaders in the 15th century, uh, which happened to be Europe's first overseas settler colonial foray in the modern era. And it, in a sense, sets the scene very well because a lot of what we see happening in the Canary Islands gets repeated later on. So, um, you know, that was an, a significant choice for me. Then secondly, the case study, uh, the second case study is the annihilation of Aboriginal Queenslanders 
in the latter half of the 19th century. You know, that was a product of British imperialism. And it's, it's quite clear to me that Queensland, there are several uh, possibilities on the Australian uh, continent for, you know, cases of, of genocidal studies. And, the, and, and the, the, the best known internationally is that of Tasmania, um, because Aboriginal Tasmanians were completely or supposedly completely annihilated. But Queensland not only covers a much larger area, but it also, um, uh, you know, was the largest of the annihilations. So I decided on, on Queensland. Then thirdly, <clears throat> the third case study is the obliteration of Native American societies in California in the wake of the gold rush, which was a result of American expansionism. And then fourthly, the eradication of the Herero people of present-day Namibia under German rule in the early 20th century, which in significant ways foreshadowed the genocidal horrors of World War II and the other iconic mass killings of the 20th century, such that people routinely refer to the 20th century, or scholars routinely refer to the 20th century as the century of genocide. Now, these case studies were chosen because of their broad geographical and also their broad temporal diversity. They were chosen for covering a very varied range of imperial expansions. Um, also, they embody a diverse set of settler genocidal dynamics, as well as you know, a varied range of historical significances. And in the end, I think that that robust discussion we had um, over the choice of case studies was very useful, as it in the end resulted in what I would regard as a near optimal set of case studies. You know, when I try and think of what I would replace, I, I don't think I would replace anything. Um, so near optimal is what I would think. What a great place to end up with um, after so many conversations and thinking. So thank you for um, introducing us a bit to the case studies and sharing the thinking behind it. Um, and I kind of want to make sure we lay, we address the other foundational aspect of the book, which is, of course, definitions. And I was pleased to see in the book that you do um, discuss this in, again, a lot of detail, but in quite accessible detail, because I think that's quite often where um, there are misunderstandings between per perhaps headlines and the public perception of genocide um, and scholarly work. So um, I'd first like to ask you to tell us a little bit about the distinction between motive and intent when it comes to thinking about and determining genocide. Okay, um, let me start off by saying that the longest and probably the most acrimonious debate in genocide studies is about the meaning of the term genocide itself. Um, there's a great deal of controversy and confusion about precisely what the concept entails, and much of the discussion is emotionally charged, given the status of genocide as the most heinous of all crimes and the lingering effects of such mass violence through history, across the globe, down the generations, and so on. Um, and one of the big areas of confusion relates to the concept of intent 
that forms the linchpin of most definitions of genocide and most pertinently that of the United Nations Convention of Genocide, the UNCG for short. Um, most definitions of genocide specify that genocide cannot be accidental, but that it requires intent to destroy the victim group. In other words, it requires purposeful action. Now, in juridical contexts and in genocide studies, intent has a meaning quite distinct from that of motive. And, you know, that distinction has given rise to added confusion as commentators, apologists, and denialists regularly, sorry, regularly claim that XYZ is not genocide because the perpetrators or the government did not plan extermination or did not explicitly announce their intention to destroy the social group. Now, to unpack this a little bit further, in everyday speech, motive and intent can often be used interchangeably without problem. But in juridical contexts and in genocide studies, motive refers to action that is premeditated and that has consciously desired outcomes. Okay, motive requires premeditated action. Intent, on the other hand, refers to the ability of actors to reasonably foresee the outcome of the actions. Now, put in this rather abstract way, it might not make immediate sense, but I can offer listeners a concrete example that will make the distinction clear. And I like using what I think of as the bank robbery example. Now, imagine that I decide to rob a bank. I take my handgun, I go to the bank, I point it at the teller and demand all the money that he or she has. At that point, a security guard walks in through a side door. I wheel around and shoot, killing the guard. Now, under those circumstances, I am likely to be charged with murder, as I would in nearly all jurisdictions be held to have had intent to kill. Now, note that my motive was not to kill anyone, but to rob the bank. But the reasoning behind a murder indictment and the charge of having intent to kill is that any reasonable person should be able to foresee that if they were to rob a bank with a firearm, there is high risk of someone being killed. So in the eyes of the law, I would thus be held to have had intent to kill. In a similar way, if settlers invade a territory without an explicit plan of exterminating the native pop, pop, uh, population and wanting nothing more than to acquire land on which to farm. But in the process of conquest, they kill many indigenes, they starve large numbers of people to death by destroying their food sources, they confiscate their children, they rape women, they capture and enslave others, and in that way effectively destroy the society, then in my book, they had intent to commit genocide. Now, that is specifically the case if settler invaders recognize that they are destroying that society, and there's no shortage of evidence for that, or they develop exterminatory attitudes towards indigenous people, and there are heaps of evidence uh, for that. So, um, you know, 
just to finish off up, virtually all definitions of genocide set the requirement for genocide at the intent to destroy, which has a lower burden of proof than motive. And of course, motive already implies the presence of intent. Um, but um, just about every definition of genocide or, or every um, usable definition of genocide focuses on intent rather than motive. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and I guess the obvious next question is kind of, with all of that discussion, um, what definition then is used in this book? Uh, the definition of genocide that I use, and to quote from the book, is genocide is the intentional physical destruction of a social group or the intentional annihilation of such a significant part of the social relationships that constitute its communal life that it is no longer able to reproduce itself biologically or culturally." End of quote. Uh, this is the definition that I've developed and used over many years. It's sort of been modified over the years a little bit here and there. But as you will have seen, the emphasis is on social destruction rather than simply on killing, as is often the case in popular conceptions of the term. Now, in addition to lethal forms of violence, such as murder, massacre, and starvation, or um, deliberate starvation, I should say, this definition also covers non-lethal forms of social destruction, such as child removement, uh, removal, enslavement, deportation, sexual exploitation, suppression of cultures, among others. Um, now, I do add a corollary applicable especially to settler genocides of indigenous peoples to this definition by indicating that after the closure of the frontier and the ending of mass violence, the genocide does not necessarily come to an end in that social destruction of indigenous societies continues through less direct means, um, such as, you know, as, as I've indicated, in, indigenes being reduced to forced labor, being subject to interpersonal violence, being segregated in, rever in reserves under lethal conditions, having their culture suppressed, children removed, etc. Um, and also being subject to pernicious assimilation policies among a whole range of other abuses. Now, what I've proposed there is a relatively hard definition in that it sets a comparatively high threshold for episodes of settler conquest to count as genocide, as opposed to more soft or inclusive definitions, such as that of the, the UNCG. Um, I don't use the UNCG definition as it is too restrictive by specifying only four specific kinds of victim groups, namely national, ethnic, religious, and racial groups, and also because it is just too imprecise especially in the specification that destructions of groups in part counts as genocide. Now, in part is just too vague for me. Um, and, and now, I realize that the open-endedness of the UNCG definition may be, advantage, may be of advantage in the practical concerns of prosecuting perpetrators or initiating military intervention, but it's highly problematic for me uh, to use in scholarly analysis. Um, so I've developed my own um, definition, and but you know there's there's a huge proliferation of definitions in the in the in the field of of genocide studies. But you know that's the nature uh, 
of academic uh, discourse, I suppose. Very much. Well, thank you for explaining um, your definition um, and setting us up now. We have the, the pieces we need to jump into um, at least some of the interesting things in the case studies that you look at. Obviously, we're not going to be able to get into the same amount of detail as the book. Um, but I'd love to start us off um, by asking you to tell us about the two distinct stages of settler genocide against Indigenous peoples. Um, and you argue that these stages are really quite clear to see in a number of different instances. Um, but I'm wondering if you can maybe explain them to us through one of the case studies. Okay. I emphasize the two-stage model as there tends to be a focus on the earlier stage in most studies and neglect of the second phase. Now, the first stage is that of frontier conflict when settler communities, usually in concert with the colonial state and the metropolitan government, displace indigenous peoples, establish control of the land and assume legal title to it. Uh, this is usually the bloody phase in which murder, massacre and mayhem of many kinds are perpetrated over the struggle for control of the land and resources. And this is where studies of settler genocides usually focus, as this is where most of the mass violence happens. Now, the second stage, which is less openly lethal, but nevertheless highly destructive of indigenous societies, comes after the closing of the frontier. Um, now, although there may still be extensive violence, even massacres, the focus shifts to less murderous forms of social destruction, such as cultural suppression, child removal, segregation into reserves, forced labor, sexual exploitation, um, and you know, very often the deliberate failure, sometimes even open refusal to provide adequate nutrition or medical care to people who are wards of the state, you know, if, if they are put into reserves, for example. Now, to me, these practices, though often non-lethal um, in the immediate sense, are all part of the genocide because it's all part of social destruction. And I think that one is justified in speaking of continuing genocide of the, uh, after the killing has stopped um, because the social destruction continues. Now, while these two phases are observable in nearly all uh, case studies, Queensland represents a typical example. Um, during the frontier phase, through the latter half of the 19th century, the Aboriginal population was decimated through a combination of vigilante violence on the part of settler farmers, acting both individually and in concert, and then secondly, and very importantly, through the depredations of the Queensland Mounted Native Police, which was a paramilitary force maintained by the colonial state and that was deployed in frontier regions to protect settlers, uh, to help move indigenes off ancestral land and to actively suppress Aboriginal resistance. Now, the Native Police in times of heightened Aboriginal resistance in effect acted as a mobile death squad sweeping through the countryside, attacking indigenous communities and killing any aborigines they encountered. And, you know, there were times when, when they went on these forays over a period of weeks, they might kill 500 aboriginal people. Um, there were at least two of these large forays, but native police often just went on the rampage killing people. So this was Queensland's 
first phase. And maybe I should just mention that scholars um, estimate that native police perpetrated about two-thirds of the killings and um, um, civilian um, uh, farmers on their own, maybe about one-third. Now, once the frontier closed by the late 1880s and Aborigines were no longer regarded as a threat, government policy shifted from, in essence, pursuing an undeclared war on indigenes to a combination of segregation in reserves and on mission stations, labor exploitation, and importantly, population management in terms of the racist theories of the day. Now, the racist theories of the day dictated that what they called full-blooded Aborigines would naturally die out as a result of the inherent racial inferiority and an inability to adapt to modern living. And disease was assumed uh, would be the, the major killer. On the other hand, people who were regarded as being of mixed race would survive because of the superior racial makeup being partly descended from Europeans. But the existence, the existence of these mixed race people was an embarrassment to the mainstream society and they were expected to create problems in the future due to their supposed propensity for higher rates of criminality, vagrancy, alcoholism and other social pathologies because of their Aboriginal heritage. And the response of the authorities to this group was to embark on a program of assimilation, what they called, and I quote, breeding out the color, which they anticipated would take maybe three or four generations. Now, this was the origin of the infamous Stolen Generation saga, in which tens of thousands, and it's estimated maybe up to 100,000, Aboriginal children of supposed mixed race were forcibly removed from the Aboriginal families to be raised in foster care on mission stations and as adoptees and assimilated into settler society, mainly as menial laborers. And of course, these poor kids suffered terrible abuse of which the emotional and psychological trauma would be guaranteed. Now, this is a very short and crude summary, but I just wanted to convey the the, the, the post convey that the post frontier phase was often overtly genocidal in the sense of the settler establishment seeking to obliterate an indigenous presence in their new homeland. Thank you for explaining that. Um, obviously, the book does go into a lot of detail about how this plays out in a number of different contexts. Um, but I think that that summary gives us a good idea of the two stages and of also some of the things that might sometimes be overlooked um, when thinking about um, genocidal actions or time. Yeah, just as a matter of interest, I mean, a a little interesting factoid I can throw in is that in nearly all cases, you've got those two stages, but in the the Canaries, you don't have the the two stage um, uh, happening effectively because um, what happened in the Canaries is that with conquest, they immediately enslaved the inhabitants, removed them from the island. Uh, There there were seven uh, habitable islands, removed them from the island, sold them into slavery, and that was the the end of that society. So there was only one stage there. Um, 
Sorry for the interruption. Uh, no, a useful, a useful um, thing to be aware of. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons it's a particularly interesting case study. Um, but I do want to sort of continue the idea of some of the connecting arguments that you're making. Um, and one of them that comes out in the book is around uh, the role of market forces and the role in a lot of senses of capitalism. And you talk about the global market for commodities in particular as being a key driver of genocidal violence in settler colonies. Can you explain to us sort of how and why these things are linked? Yeah, um, the global market for commodities was a key mechanism for driving genocidal violence in settler colonies, in my opinion. In the first instance, it was the prospect of building a new and prosperous life producing commodities, you know, be it wool, gold or sugar, that motivated much settler migration to settler colonies in the first place. You know, it wasn't the only reason, but it was well, and increasingly became uh, the, the major reason. And those very same hopes propelled settlers beyond colonial borders into new frontier zones soon after many reached the colonies. So global capitalist markets helped to propel flows of people outward from the metropole. Now, the second aspect to all of this was that there was an ever-increasing flow of commodities in the other direction, from the colonies to metropoles. For much of the time, and especially during economic booms, global commercial markets promoted genocidal violence in settler colonies, and particularly in frontier regions, because commodity producers could sell all or, or as much as they could produce at lucrative prices into this market. So the global market provided an incentive to maximize profit at whatever cost. Uh, to put it bluntly, few farmers or frontiersmen were going to allow either indigenous fauna, flora, or people to get in the way of making their fortunes or simply just making a living, which was the case for many people. There was thus wholesale destruction of indigenous vegetation that was seen as obstructive, um, as well as the mass killing of indigenous animals that were regarded as pests or that had commercial value, and often the slaughter of indigenous peoples who resisted settler encroachment, um, even in situations of labor shortage. Now, settlers were generally adept at importing cheap or forced labor from outside of, of these colonies. Um, of course, the industrialization of Europe through the 19th century, um, with, with the industrialization, the demand for commodities increased exponentially, and so did the flow of settlers to colonies and mass violence against indigenous peoples. And settlers were really most dangerous and most likely to resort to exterminatory violence when in full frothing boom frenzy during land and mineral rushes, as happened in particularly in the case, you know, in, in our case studies uh, in post-1848 California, and then uh, especially from the 1840s into the 1860s in Queensland. Um, in contrast to how global capitalist markets worked in traditional societies, 
there were limits to what could be consumed and produced and the impulse to maximize profit um, was stunted. One thus does not have that kind of economically motivated rapaciousness um, uh, um, in, in, in cases or in times before uh, one had the globalization of, of commodity markets. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. I think it was a really interesting way to bring together things that maybe don't seem related, right? Cattle and agriculture, but then with like gold rushes, but actually are driven by a lot of the same sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. So I was wondering if you could maybe um, tell us a little bit about kind of that was in a lot of ways the similarity between them. But you also show in the book that there are some differences um, in these kinds of commodity types, although they might be driven by a lot of the same impulses, they can also have varied impacts um, in the kind of very short term in indigenous societies. And this was really clear um, in the logic, for example, of Queensland agricultural expansion versus perhaps California's gold rush. Um, so can you maybe go into a little bit more about that, about kind of what the impact on the ground might be for these different kinds of um, commodity driven economies? Sure. Um, the nature of the settler economy directly influences the impact that settler invasions have on indigenous peoples. So different forms of economic activity have distinct underlying dynamics and patterns of displacement and violence. So let us first take crop growing. Agriculturalists tend to be sedentary, they mark out longer term occupations of land with fences and hedges and through title deeds and are inclined to expand incrementally and contiguously and they occupy land fairly comprehensively. And, you know, as a result of that, they spread relatively slowly and leave little or no space for indigenous peoples um, except on their farms as laborers and also the denser populations of crop growing regions meant a steep power imbalance between settlers and indigenes. So crop growing is comprehensive, but slow moving in its impact, and they can't move too far away from uh, their markets because it's, it's expensive and difficult to, to transport their produce. Now, commercial stock farmers, however, especially when entering virgin territory, moved much more swiftly and rapidly occupied sweeping expanses of land. And in drier ecologies, um, they occupied even larger expanses and tended constantly to be on the move in search for water and grazing. And also, of course, livestock degraded the ecology in a wide variety of ways and soon put indeed indigenous peoples at risk of malnutrition and even salvation. Um, but they did leave islands of space between sprawling landholdings, allowing some indigenous groups the very dangerous alternative of living off a combination of stock theft and foraging for a while in any case. Um, now, while stock farmers tended to expand colonial frontiers speedily, they were vulnerable to indigenous attack because they tended to be spread across a large landscape um, in small isolated groupings. 
but they did have one big advantage over crop growers in that their produce could walk to markets and stock markets could then operate hundreds of kilometers from the nearest market town, for example. So stock farmer invasions can be very rapid, but much more patchy in their impact. Now, the third one would a major um, economic activity is mining, which had an, its own dynamic in that mineral deposits, especially gold, tended to draw rushes of thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people to a particular location. And in the case of California, it was hundreds of thousands of people with, within a few years. Now, miners were extremely destructive of the local environment in that they dug massive holes, they moved mountains of dirt, they diverted streams, and they set up lawless and chaotic shanty towns populated by rough and tumbled armed younger men and adventurers who consumed prodigious amounts of alcohol. You know, that is a lethal combination on anarchic frontiers where you've got armed large numbers of young armed men um, consuming large amounts of alcohol. Now, the, the, the discovery of minerals was disastrous for indigenous communities in the region uh, who very soon found themselves up against the wall. And if the mineral deposit was substantial, uh, the building of road, rail, and port infrastructure made the settler presence permanent. And so there was um, very often what one might regard as effective wilderness areas very quickly being transformed um, into settler strongholds by the discovery of minerals. I just very quickly want to uh, point to a fourth uh, form of economic activity just to, to point how it operates differently, and that is fishing. And um, this is not in one of my case studies in the book, but we see fishing as the key activity in Newfoundland. Now, with fishing, it was focused mainly on the sea which meant that settlers, if they were there, were confined to the coast. So there was no land rush. In all of these other cases, we have land rushes. So there was no land rush. Um, and it took one and a half centuries before a few settlers started staying on the island. And then they started turning to terrestrial resources, mainly fishing for salmon in rivers and then furring. But both salmon fishing and furring did not require um, you know, you to actually hold land. And the upshot of that is that you have a very different um, trajectory happening there, a different dynamic in that it took three centuries um, before settlers destroyed the indigenous uh, Beothic societies of Newfoundland. So, you know, the different economic activities have different dynamics, but in all of these case studies, they in the end have the same um, effect, and that is of destroying indigenous societies. There are, of course, a few cases of failed um, settler projects where indigenous people um, are resilient and in the end are able to not only withstand the colonial presence, but in time. Um, uh, win back their freedom, as it were. 
and I happen to live in one of the, the key examples, that being South Africa, it was a settler colony. Um, there was genocide committed against the hunter-gatherers or the sand people that lived here. They destroyed the Kwekwe society, but um, um, relationships with the Bantu-speaking peoples were were very different. But you know, that, that's a complex issue. I, I, I don't want to go into that. I just want to point out that there are different outcomes mm. and different dynamics at, at play. I think that's really interesting. So I'm, I'm glad you've um, added that in. Thank you. Um, and I, I want to uh, think about sort of the idea of resistance and resilience, because the last chronological case study that you look at in the book does have essentially moments of that. Um, as you mentioned, in your, the last case study focuses on um, German settler genocide in Namibia. And you obviously detail um, much more effectively than I'm going to in the next sentence, how uh, there was actually difficult, the, the Germans actually had trouble colonizing. Um, initially, there weren't enough of them it, the, there to impose really their will. And then there was also um, a pretty successful, at least for a while, rebellion against German settler um, dominance. But that doesn't end well, particularly for the indigenous group there, um, obviously, otherwise it wouldn't be included necessarily in a genocide book. But I think one aspect of this case study that we haven't really talked about yet, and so I wonder if we can bring that strand in, is, of course, racism. Um, and this is a pretty significant aspect of genocidal policies in settler colonies. And you do mention how it influences things in the other case studies as well. But I was wondering if you could help us understand the role of the ideology of racism in this particular case study and the particular sort of extreme genocidal policy that the Germans eventually pursued. Okay, yes, um, racism is a highly adaptable and variable ideology that changed in significant ways over the six centuries that the book covers. Now, the tendency over that period was for racial ideologies to become progressively extreme and rigid in depicting the European other uh, or oh, sorry, the savage other as as in, inferior. And whenever I use the term savage, it will be in very heavy quotation marks. Because... Now, from the start of European colonization through to about the late 18th century, the so-called savage was seen in very negative, but nonetheless ambivalent ways as clearly inferior but with at least a theoretical chance of improvement and the negative image was softened by the, no, by the notion of the noble savage. But then we see that changing from the late 18th century onwards with the rise of the biological sciences during the Enlightenment. And we see that the image of the savage now becomes unmitigatingly negative as racial difference was no longer seen as a matter of varying climates or different cultures, but the result of the biological nature of peoples and thus hard baked into their very essence and thus unchangeable. So, you know, um, that, that is one of the sort of dark sides of the Enlightenment, as it were, in that it, it gave rise to a racial science. Then from the late 19th century, this utterly negative view 
evolved to a further extreme of what became known as social Darwinism. Now, this variant of racism, social Darwinism, drew on Darwin's ideas of natural selection and applied it to human society. Social Darwinists saw human society essentially, or sorry, saw human history essentially as a cosmic struggle for supremacy between the various races in which the fittest, naturally the Caucasoid race, would survive and the unfit, especially the so-called savage races, would die out as a result of the inability to compete with the superior race for resources and, you know, their inability to withstand disease and so on. Now, there's a strong, potentially genocidal element to social Darwinist thinking in that the survival of the fittest implied the dying out of the unfit. Social Darwinists saw the dying out of the unfit not only as desirable, but also as inevitable. Now, I've tried to give you a very brief and crude outline of the development of racist ideologies through this period. Um, but you ask about it with regard to the Herero case. Now, the commander of the German army sent to Namibia to put down the Herero rebellion, General Lothar von Trotter, was not only a committed social Darwinist, but also considered it his duty to assist nature in its task of getting rid of the unfit. He thus conducted his campaign, his campaign in an explicitly social Darwinist fashion, in that he actually tried to exterminate the Herrera and publicly announced his intention of doing so through his in infamous Vernichtungsbefehl or extermination order. Now, it's quite a long saga, and I'm not going to go into it in detail, but the upshot of it was that about 80% of Herero uh, died as a result of German depredations, most of it under uh, von Trotta himself. Um, now, von Trotta did not fully succeed, and the Herero managed to reconstitute themselves as a community, today approaching a population of perhaps 300,000, giving the lie to the social, to social Darwinist ex expectations. Um, that's just a brief outline. I don't know if you want any more detail. Um, no, I think that's, that's brilliant. Um, thank you for explaining that to us. I think it's a really important um, piece of this case study and, um, as you said, in, in general. Um, and so speaking kind of general things, um, as we come towards the end of the interview, um, I'd love to ask you a few things about, um, I suppose, the kind of the big picture of the book. And the first is about what can we understand by looking at all of these case studies um, and in general in this study about the role of law in spurring indigenous elimination efforts in settler colonies? Okay, um, colonial legal systems operated in two ways to disadvantage indigenous communities in settler colonial situations. In the first instance, during the frontier phase, the absence of the rule of law favored settlers who had superior weaponry and the backing of the colonial state. Um, and they could use uh, that those resources to confiscate land and perpetrate violence against indigenes with impunity. 
remember that the frontier is defined by the absence of state control. And because the state is the entity that implemented the rule of law, frontier zones are by, de are by definition free of legal jurisdiction of both the colonial and metropolitan state, met metropolitan states. In Julie Evans's words, the frontier is a place where, and I quote, lawlessness is the law. Now, that is the situation during the frontier phase. Then once the frontier has closed and the colonial state asserts its authority over the area, usually through the police station, the courthouse, cadastral maps and the like, the legal system, both de jure and de facto, dispossess indigenous peoples and usually subject them to all kinds of discriminatory treatment meant to exploit and control them. Um, and these laws were quite draconian, as the book spells out in, in you know, all of the, the case studies. It is noteworthy that in both Queensland and California, legislation deceitfully professing to protect Indigenous people with names such as, you know, Act for the Protection of, uh, intentionally did the exact opposite. Uh, what we see in German Southwest Africa is that the native ordinances dispensed with such niceties and openly spelt out the oppression, the oppression that Herrero were to be subjected to um, in, in, in brutal detail. Um, and in the Canaries, the, privilege, the privileges of conquest was in effect the law. Um, so, you know, um, the law operated in those two ways to disadvantage um, indigenous peoples and put all the power in the hands of the settler establishment. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's because there is such a concept of the frontier being lawless, um, the idea of law uh, enabling genocidal policies sometimes seems contradictory. So it's really helpful to have that um, clarified and explained. And then for perhaps um, my last big question, though I've got one after that, so who knows. Um, in terms of kind of big picture argument, of course, there's a lot of settler colonialism but not all of them have genocides. So why does settler colonialism rise to genocidal levels in some instances, but not others? Um, look, I'm not able to isolate a specific factor or offer a unified theory um, to explain why genocide happens in some, but not in other settler colonial situations. Um, because if, if you look at them carefully, it's, it's a, it's, they, they vary quite a bit and you have a complex interplay of many different um, factors um, in, these, in settler colonial situations. Um, but there are a few key elements, I think, that predispose such conflict to exterminatory violence. As I've sort of indicated before, I think a significant factor tipping the balance towards genocide is the degree to which the settler colony was integrated into the global economy and 
um, the degree to which settler communities could benefit through commodity production for that globalizing market. As discussed earlier, uh, this impulse to riches was a powerful factor evident in three of our four of our uh, four case studies. In the fourth one, German Southwest Africa, it was not market forces, but a combination of the need to salvage German pride through a crushing victory over the Herero, the social Darwinism of the military commander, and the nature of German military thinking. Um, rather than economic considerations that drove the genocidal impulse. So a significant factor would be, you know, um, the, the effect of the global um, commodity or capitalist market. A second factor was the degree and nature of indigenous resistance to settler intrusion that determined the kind of reaction that the settler establishment came up with. The greater the indigenous resistance to settler encroachment and the greater its threat to the settler project, the more violent one can expect the settler response to be. And there's a fairly consistent three-stage pattern to what happens on the ground of first having settler intrusion followed by indigenous resistance and then, and then an excessive response. Um, from the settler establishment that often included a resort to exterminatory violence. Um, but of course, it doesn't always, it's not always ex exterminatory. Um, and then maybe a third factor um, that I can point to is that sometimes the nature of the indigenous society itself um, uh, you know, lends the conflict to um, a, a genocidal outcome. And this is particularly true of hunter-gatherer societies. When you're talking about small-scale societies, um, any form of substantive violence against them by its very nature then takes the form of total war against them. You know, you hunter-gatherer societies for example, don't have standing armies. So, you know, you, you can't have battles as such. The only way to get at a hunter-gatherer society is to uh, attack the society as a whole, um, to go after bands uh, and, and, and um, perpetrate violence against the band rather than just fighters. Um, and so um, I think that they, you know, I'm not able to identify any sort of unifying um, thread or, or theory or a specific factor. I think one needs to look at each case um, on its own merits. Mm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but also some of the factors you highlighted as being significant to look at are also really useful. So again, um, I think there's really a lot to get out of this book from a lot of different perspectives. Um, and so I just have one question left, I suppose, um, hopefully not the hardest question that I've asked so far, um, which is you mentioned at the beginning that you've had a, an amazing career and you are recently retired. Congratulations. I hope you get to enjoy that. Um, so is there anything you want to tell us about your current 
projects or things you want to point people towards? Um, or maybe is there something amazing about retirement that you want to tease all the rest of us to look forward to? <laughs> well, in retirement, I'm doing on my own terms what I've been doing as, as when I was employed. So, you know, um, I, in a sense, hardly ever worked a day in my life because I enjoyed my work so much. I'm continuing to work free of charge here at my old department. But since finishing the book, I've completed studies of the genocidal destruction of the Beothic people of Newfoundland by British settlers. And I've gotten some way into the destruction of the Selknam people of Tierra del Fuego. Now, both of those are for chapters in edited volumes. Um, that I've been invited to contribute to. But now that I have completed a case study, sorry, a case-based study of settler genocides, I will probably next embark on a set of comparative thematic studies of the phenomenon globally. Um, and, you know, the sorts of themes I, <clears throat> I will probably look at are the means whereby settlers gain control of the land and you know, that's a key issue because settler colonialism is a land-centered project. Um, I'm interested in how civilian settlers organize themselves to commit mass violence and the role of vigilante violence in all of this. I think an obvious thing to look at would be the gendered and generational aspects of the violence. An important issue that needs unpacking is the role of disease in the destruction of indigenous societies because... Um, Apologists and denialists keep on um, harping on disease as the, the destroyer. But in fact, you know, you, you, disease needs to be looked at in the context uh, or its impact needs to be assessed in the context of colonial violence. Um, then maybe, you know, an interesting theme would be that of child confiscation um, because it varies so much across um, case studies. Um, and one thing that I do have particular interest in and will develop further is the mythologies and the manifest destinies that settler societies create and propagate to justify their existence and the violence that they perpetrated or deny perpetrating. Um, you know, that's just... a, a off the top of my mind, the, the key sorts of themes I would like to look at, but I, I could probably easily um, mention another half a dozen others as well. Um, I'll probably just carefully choose five or six and um, look at them comparatively in a global uh, context. Well, that sounds fascinating. So hopefully if that becomes a book, you can come back and tell us about it. Um, and you've got lots of projects to be getting on with that sound really quite interesting. Um, but while you are off doing that, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is titled Destroying to Replace Settler Genocides of Indigenous Peoples out in 2022 from Hackett. Thank you so much, Mohammed, for being with us on the podcast to tell us about your book. And Miranda, thank you for inviting me to participate in this program. I enjoyed the encounter tremendously. Thank you.